As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the season is upon us in less than 24 hours, actually just more than 24 hours after posting this pod, the Vancouver Canucks will get it started in Edmonton, the first of a five-game road trip. Hockey season is finally here to all the VIPs. Harm, I know you're excited. I know you're going to be there. Just look, you're not like me, right? As we saw in the promo, we had lots of things going on. We'll get into the Blue Jays loss later because I know we've got some revisionist, revisionist history to do here. But, um, hey, we got to go, and it's finally here. You excited? 100%. I mean, this is – it's funny when you look at the start of training camp. Everyone is is always so jacked up for training camp, whether it's media, fans, players. And there's that initial buzz from whether it's in Whistler or Victoria or even Abbotsford through the first few days and seeing how guys look and the buzz of seeing an Andre Kuzmenko. And then by the time the preseason games start, it's like – can we just fast forward to October? And it's funny that I I swear the Canucks' year, the last four seasons, always begins on the road in Edmonton, it feels like, at least since I've been covering the team. Mm-hmm. So this seems to be an annual tradition, and I cannot wait to be talking and, and covering real games as opposed to preseason ones. Yeah, you know, and, and as our promo indicated, I'm not one of those guys that gets excited and has buzz for the start of training camp. Um, I generally have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the season, but now I'm excited, right? Like for me, it's like I'm not interested in camp. I'm not interested in the preseason. I got way too much going on in the other spaces, but like I obviously, you know, you, you, you pay attention, you cover it, you do that. But now that it actually matters... Uh, I am so fired up for tomorrow. It's going to be fun. And there's so many questions around this team. There's enough newness around this team that I think it should whet everyone's appetite and get you excited because preseason's preseason, right? And even though we had a dress rehearsal and it looked a lot like the actual roster, but there were still some pieces missing that final week. 
Um, you know, Quinn Hughes had some time off and Brock Besser hadn't been playing. And, you know, now everybody's there. Mikheyev notwithstanding, right? I mean, and, and Tyler Myers, I guess, but we know what Tyler Myers is uh, as a player and we know what he is as a Canuck. Mikheyev, we still need to see what he is as a Canuck. Um, so it, it should be a lot of fun. And um, let's, uh, let's, let's start there. Let's talk about the roster. I want to get into the roster. I want to get into what the early lines are looking like based on what we've seen the last couple of days in practice, right? And I know that they haven't given a full go to Brock Besser, um, even though we are expecting him to be a full go on Wednesday at this point. Bruce Boudreaux says it's still up to, you know, doctors and trainers, but he was still hopeful. So I'll go through the quick uh, the lines and the roster and where we're at on that regard. The Canucks did a little bit of sneaky business so that they could completely optimize their cap situation. I think a few of us not named Harmon Drancer were surprised that um, raise the banner. Well, yeah, raise the banner. But you know, in terms of in terms of what the lines look like, or in terms of what the things look like on paper, uh, because I think it was Carlson that was sent down on paper, uh, but never actually left, and. Uh, um, it Klimovich. was uh, it was Dmit- Dmitry Klimovich that was uh, brought in, but that was Dmitry pure- Klimovich. Did I say what did I say? Uh, Danila uh, Klimovich. Sorry, Danila Klimovich. <laughs> Klimovich brought in. So you know we we wind up uh, still seeing the same lines though. That was a paper move to get the Canucks right to the cap number so they could fully maximize Michael Furlan's uh, LTIR. But really, in terms of what the lines looked like, we've got Pearson, Miller, Hoaglander, Pod Colson, Horvat, Garland, uh, Kuzmenko, Pedersen, Carlson. Joshua Amon Lazar and that line uh, in place partly because of the function of no longer having Jason Dickinson in the Canucks lineup we'll get into that trade uh, at some point later on in the show as well but Besser's not in there so now we believe is it going to be as simple as Besser going to the top line with Miller and Pearson and then Hoaglander either moving to the Kuzmenko Pedersen line or Hoaglander potentially being the 13th forward uh, based on based on what your thoughts are, what do you think it, it's going to end up as Wednesday night in Edmonton? Yeah, I think it should be Hoaglander on that third line with Kuzmenko and Pedersen because while I've been impressed overall with Carlson at camp in preseason and, and I can see the legitimate NHL potential in his game, I just think as a top nine forward, Hoaglander is a lot more established. There's way more offensive pop and, and upside in his game. And obviously he also produced... Um, recently towards the back end of the preseason with that rebound goal as well. And and I've liked his game, generally speaking. Now, and having said that, I think the first couple games, there's no player with higher stakes to prove his worth than Hoaglander because Besser, when when Boudreaux was speaking at practice on the, on the weekend, it, he didn't sound as if he was expecting Besser to play. I wouldn't call it a guarantee. But again, it, hopeful was the word used. So you're expecting him back into the fray uh, really soon. And Mikheyev, too, practicing today, I believe. I, I can't recall if it was non-contact or not, but he's either way going to be back sooner rather than later. And that means that with with your top nine completely healthy, you're back in a scenario where Hoaglander has to hit the ground running. Otherwise, he could be in a spot where he's out of the lineup and we're, we're discussing whether he should go back to Abbotsford or not. He needs a huge first season opener and over the weekend in Philadelphia to prove to Boudreaux that, hey, you can't you can't dislodge me from this top nine. You can't dislodge me from this roster spot. And so that, to me, is going to be really fascinating to see over this uh, first week of the season. 
Yeah, there's no doubt because I mean, certainly Amon has looked a part of a fourth line center, and and you know he's got the pace to play and work with that fourth li- or fourth line. But I know that in Hoaglander's case, they also gave him opportunities during this preseason to play a little bit lower in the lineup just to show he could play everywhere. Because certainly the narrative coming into the year was that he could only be a top nine forward. And if not for that, then let's not give him six minutes a line or eight minutes, sorry, eight minutes a night or whatever it is on a fourth line. And that might not be his where his skill set is best served. Then let's send him to Abbotsford. But, you know, I, I think Hoaglander um, showed some good things when he was playing on a fourth line. And Boudreaux certainly indicated as much. So you may get into a situation at some point where you take Joshua or Lazar and move him to the middle and, and put Hoaglander on that line. But Depends how that line shows itself the first couple of games while we're still waiting on Micaiah. But yeah, certainly it doesn't seem like it's going to take that long to get him back into the lineup. It's only a matter of of days, not weeks. Uh, you know, one or two games he may miss. But, um, you know, I certainly think uh, his time in the Canuck lineup is coming sooner rather than later. And let's look at the back end as we saw uh, Quinn Hughes absent from practice on Monday. Uh, Boudreaux said he was under the weather with a non-COVID illness. They were expecting him to practice today, uh, and you know he got the maintenance days earlier as well. He and Connor Garland got a maintenance day from the previous practice. He didn't play in the previous game, so hopefully it's just a sickness and nothing more than that. Um, but uh, you know, but all that said, as we look at how the pairs were were um, setting up, OEL Pullman, Rathbone Shen, Stillman Burrows, Stillman the newcomer, of course. So. Is it is like, what does that mean, right? Like, do I look at that and think that Hughes is going to go next to OEL and Pullman's going to be scratched? Is it simply a, a matter of, because Rathbone and Shen makes a lot of sense to me and to many others. And, you know, I think they want to get a bit of a look at Stillman. So, you know, does he play there with Burroughs or does he, does Stillman eventually play with Pullman, right? Like what what's, you know, with, uh, with um, Hughes going in on the left side. So... I'm curious to see what that turns into because certainly Pullman has shown us nothing to this point in the preseason. And he got a lot of run because I think they want him to test himself to make sure that with, with the sensitive nature of his injury that he can play, but he certainly didn't show that, Oh wow, this guy is demanding a spot in the top six. Yeah. And I'm going to be interested to see if they bank on his track record, right? Because look, a healthy Tucker Pullman, if you're assuming that he can play the way he did last season and the way he did in Winnipeg, there's definitely a role for him on this back end. But yeah, he was shaking off some rust. I thought he started to look a little bit more comfortable as the preseason went on, but definitely it wasn't the the, the best training camp for him. Now, when I look at this back end, I just, again, I strongly feel that Hughes needs to be on the left side, especially with Myers out. Like your bottom four, if you stack OEL and, and Hughes together, is frankly a disaster. And I mean, yeah, you'll dominate in the 25 minutes a night or whatever that Hughes and OEL play as a pair together. But in my opinion, when you're missing Dermot and Myers, you need to be able to bump OEL down and sort of spread the gaps so that you can move the puck. How are you going to move the puck if uh, if your bottom four is some combination of Shen and Pullman and, and Rathbone and, and Burroughs? And of course, Rathbone can. Um Rathbone can move the puck. He's mobile, but probably more more in a third pair role than in a second pair one. And also, of course, Stillman. I'm going to be curious if they look to get him get him into the lineup right away, or, or how they perceive that. Because with Stillman, 
he obviously brings the toughness and edge and physicality that I think this management group wants on the back end. But with Dermot out, you're missing a little bit of that puck moving, uh, puck moving and skating right off the bat. And if Stillman is coming in for someone like Burr or uh, so- someone like Rathbone, then I do wonder if you have enough puck moving at the bottom end of uh, bottom end bottom end of your blue line. So that's something that I'm going to be curious to see. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a, a great read right now uh, in terms of what Boudreaux is going to do with this back end. Just because when I look at that right side, whether it's Pullman, I, I think Shen's the only one where I look at him like, and I'm like, yeah, he should. I want him to play with Hughes on the top pair. But after that, I'm I'm not sure what the best combination should be. I don't know what direction Boudreaux is going to lean into. So that's going to be really interesting to see sort of what he what he decides to opt for. Yeah, see, for me, I think they're going to go with Hughes on the right side. And I say that only because we saw Rathbone and Shen together, right? I think if Rathbone was going to play with Burroughs, I think we would have seen that yesterday so they could get those two together and, you know, as much chemistry with them as possible or have him play with Pullman right out of the gate if that's what if that was what the plan was but because he's playing with Shen it just makes me think they're going to throw Hughes in on the right side um, but what you know but what if they go what if they just bump Shen up when Hughes go Hughes goes and they go Hughes Shen OEL Pullman and Stillman Burrows um and take Rathbone out altogether yeah i wow, mean Rathbone would, didn't that, have the best Rathbone didn't have the best preseason game game and i'm not uh, against uh, Arizona he had a couple turnovers and i'm not saying that's what i would do but it's still a possibility. Yeah, no, it is. There, there's nothing suggesting that he's been locked in. I mean, we know he's got everything in place contract-wise for a roster spot, but you're right. I mean, it, it could be that simple. Rathbone, it's funny looking at all of it, and it maybe the obvious is just staring me in the face. Rathbone was the placeholder, and I, and I never thought about that as even being a possibility for opening night with Myers and Dermott out of the lineup. It, it just never dawned on me that that is one of the things they're looking at, and maybe it is. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of tough to interpret right now. Because again, I I look at it and go, I think you need Rathbone skating and puck moving because totally. of the bodies you're missing. But they went out and acquired Stillman for a reason, and and I and I wonder internally how they view him compared to Rathbone. It's a good question, but I they need puck movers. They need puck movers, and they've got to find a way, in my opinion, to get Rathbone in the lineup and give him a chance in these early games to play and show what he can do. Because there are others coming back later, right? I mean, we know that Dermot is week to week, and um, and uh, you know, and Pullman's going to be back, or sorry, not Pullman, but Myers is going to be back in two to four. So we do know there are reinforcements coming, and until then, I think they need to give Rathbone every opportunity. But it could be, like you say, it could be the obvious that's hitting me um, in the face. Now, as we look at the lineup and let's kind of go through our season preview around this team right now. Um, as you look at the lines and, and how they're set up and the, you know, McKayev is still due to come in at some point here. Is this group better than it was a year ago? Yes. hundred percent. You can debate how much they've improved, but the top okay, so nine let me, is let's, definitely. Let's let's rephrase it. How much okay. closer is this roster to the playoffs than they were a year ago? Because I think we can see that they haven't improved enough in the area that they needed to improve most in, being on the back end. So, how much closer are they? I still think they're well. Last season they were right on the cusp. This season I think they're close again. And I've gone back and forth in terms of 
an official sort of prediction of whether this team's uh, a play in the playoffs or not. And I've like I remember going into camp, my initial thought was, yeah, fifty five percent chance in my mind, yes. Then through camp and seeing some of the injuries, I was like, oh, that uh, that's a reminder of of how quickly, for example, the top nine can start to look a little bit thin once you remove a couple of uh, key bodies and how vulnerable they could be to injuries just in general when, when you consider how reliant they are on certain guys. But then, again, it you could on Monday I could be convinced that they're making the playoffs, and Tuesday I'd be like, no way. Like it's to me, it's legitimately a 50-50. And I think the way to sort of perceive it is, is I think to kind of present a bull and, and bear case. And the bull case I think would be they have an elite power play, uh, a first unit which has they've been together now since the 2019-20 season. The 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 core four in terms of Hughes, Pedersen, Horvat, and Miller, and they've been in the exact same roles. And so that's a level of chemistry and considering their track record of production where you know that first unit is going to be dominant regardless of if they have Kuzmenko or Besser as the right shot in the net front position. And now with the top nine being deeper than ever before, I think you can rely on the on the second unit being more productive than it was last season. And, and so you've got an elite power play right off the back. You know Demko is going to be a rock in net. And you do like some of the pieces offensively. You get Boudreaux uh, for a full season, and, and we know he's an excellent regular season coach. I think the biggest X factor working in the team's favor, though, is a possible Elias Pettersson breakout. Just watching the way he's been operating in camp in preseason, he just looks so dialed in. He looks machine-like in his high-end execution, and he just looks like a man that's ready to dominate. Again, camp in preseason... A strong camp in preseason is not a guarantee that a player is going to hit the ground running when the games actually count, but it's very reminiscent of how in the in Pedersen's sophomore year in 2019-20, he just looked so dialed in and he and he looked like the decisively the best player and he looked like he was going to be the leader and the alpha dog of this of that group. And I just get that feeling again. I mean, you go back to even the preseason game in Edmonton, and that was I mean, look. Preseason results don't matter, but they were 0-4 at that point. They needed a win just to kind of prevent that from becoming a storyline in the market and and to just get back on track in terms of their habits and their process. And, and guess who it was leading out of the gate first shift of uh, of the contest, leading on a physical basis on the forecheck? It was Pedersen throwing his body around and being engaged, and he had two goals that game. And that just, to me, was a sign of, okay... He's he's back in that dominant leader. I'm the best player on this team sort of mindset. And so I think with him and, and Besser potentially bouncing back that they could be sharper at the top end of their roster offensively, which is huge. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Canucks starting really slow out of the gate in the last two years coincided with Pedersen being slow out of the gate. So if he can produce right away, I think that significantly enhances their odds of preventing a slow start on this first road trip. And then as another bull case point, we obviously have discussed how we don't expect JT Miller to hit 99 points again. But when you talk about a potential JT Miller regression, the thing to keep in mind is that the bulk of where we got some of the unsustainable spike in his production was on the power play, right? He was third in the NHL behind only McDavid Drysaddle in power play points. We expect that to drop off. Even if Miller drops off on the power play in terms of the point production and, and how reliant that first unit is on him driving the bus, 
the first unit can still produce at an elite clip if Miller falls off by 10 to 15 points, because that's what we saw in the 2019-20 season. I think Miller at that point had 10 to 15 fewer power play points than he did la- uh, last season. And the power play that year was second in the NHL in terms of overall goals, goals scored. So you could have a scenario where Miller drops off in terms of point production and it doesn't affect the team too much so long as other guys like Pedersen pick up the slack on the power play. So I think that's a bold case as well. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the bear cases, but that's those are those would be some of the signs of optimism that I'd be looking at. Yeah. And for me, I like I think that the bear case is injuries, right? And we're seeing a yeah. little bit of that at the start of the year that's going to test them without Myers because, you know, say what you want about Myers. I think we all believe Myers is a solid NHL defenseman. He just might not be worth his contract or should be pushed a little lower in the lineup, but that doesn't mean he's not a really, really valuable blue liner for this team, right? Like it or not, and whether they, whether you want to criticize management for not improving and allowing the situation to stay the same, he's one of their top three defensemen, period. He's really important. Full stop, right? In terms of minutes played and deployment, he is Vancouver's second or third most important defenseman, period. So, uh, they're going to find out early what life's like without Tyler Myers, and you know eventually they'll get him back in. So they've gotten a little deeper on the back end with the with the acquisition of Stillman, and I want to talk to you kind of a bit more about him in a minute. But um, you know, depth is kind of the one bare case for these guys right now because we saw what happened when Pedersen was healthy, but really wasn't last year. And when I say wasn't, um, you know, I was one of those guys that was critical of him. I don't take it back. And you know why I don't take it back? Because he doesn't want me to take it back because he was critical of him, right? So it was more than just the wrist. It was confidence. It was everything. So if Pedersen's not himself, it's a massive hole. And I think he's going to be incredible this year. But if Horvat's not himself because of the contract distraction or, you know, who he's playing with or or his deployment is now a clear third line center, um, you know, there's an impact that could be made there. There is uh, JT Miller. There's going to be a level of regression. You talk about it just being on special teams, uh, and maybe that doesn't hurt them as much. But if all of a sudden JT Miller gets hurt, yeah, you can elevate Horvat up the lineup. But I just still don't believe they're equipped below that to to fill to backfill it as as it were. Right. So as I look at this team and I look at its depth and how it's set up, it still concerns me. Right. So if everybody's healthy, which we know in an 82 game NHL season just isn't going to happen. Uh, fortunately for them, they're going to get better available really early here and the injury is not going to affect him deep into the season but with Besser there might be another one because that's just what the player's history has told us so I'm just not sure that they are built to withstand um, to withstand a significant amount of player loss deep into the season and they were pretty fortunate with that last year until down the stretch when Horvat and Besser and Hoaglander got hurt yeah you look at Miller Pedersen, Hughes, Horvat, Garland, Besser, OEL, Podkoles, and Myers all played at least 70 games last season. Demko played 64 games, which is a lot for a number one goaltender. And so you brought that up, and I think that's a valid point. And I think it relates to one of the points even with the forward group is I like the top nine as a whole, but I think there's a very wide range of outcomes in terms of what could happen with the Canucks as wingers. And we talk about, for example, Andre Kuzmenko. We've liked him in preseason, and I'm more confident now than I was before training camp that he'll hit and be an impactful middle six piece. But it's still preseason, and, and it's hard to judge a player's actual effectiveness until the games count and you're against 
high-end competition and guys are going 100%. And you don't have to think too hard. I mean, think of examples like Ty Ratty, for example, with the Oilers a few years ago. He was scoring goal every game in preseason for uh, Redmonton on McDavid's line. And, and the Oilers have thought they found the the right fit for McDavid with Ratty. And Ratty, once the actual game started, ended up being a bust. And I'm not saying that's what's going to happen to Kuzmenko. I, again, I think he's going to be successful. But still, you don't know exactly what he is. And, and Tanner Pearson, for example, he was solid last season. But the year before that, in 2021, he only had 18 points in 15. 51 games. That was a 29 point pace, and he looked slow, and he looked a lot closer to the level of a fourth line player than he did a middle six one. So you have to hope that you get the 2022 version of Pearson and not the 2021 version of Pearson. And then you mentioned Besser has obviously been injury prone, but Ilya Mikheyev has has been injury prone as well. And if, and I think, for example, the wrist injury in his rookie year was a bit of a freak accident. So maybe it's not uh, maybe it's not something a case where he he gets nagging injuries and those continue to bother him, but he only played 39 games in his rookie season. He was healthy in 2021, but again, last season only played 53 games. So that uh, when I look at the wings, right, we know they're solid up the middle. They're going to from, from number one to number three down the middle with Pedersen, Miller and and Horvat. That's, that's an elite center group in the top nine, but the wings are a little bit more of a question mark. And the other thing that I bring up is, I'm I I'm really confident in Thatcher Demko. I think he's a top five goaltender in, the, in this league. But you have to remember, goalie performance, even for the absolute best net, net miners in the world, can be volatile year over year. And you might think I'm crazy for bringing that up, but I mean, you, you think of uh, Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg last year, right up there with Demko as a top five netminder, consistently in the Vesna conversation. Last year, he had a nine ten save percentage, which. Even the point I'm trying to make is we all know Demko at the very least is going to be good. But even if, let's say, he he has a down year relative to his expectations and he's good, merely good instead of elite and, oh my God, he's standing on his head every game, that could have an impact. And and we saw that with Hellebuck and Winnipeg last year. I'm, and, the, and the other thing to keep in mind is if Carey Price in his prime could have down years, any goalie can. Carey Price was the best goalie of the last, ge- of the last generation. Prime Price had two seasons where he was a 933 and then a 923 and then just randomly dropped off to 900 in 2017-18, right? Uh, Jacob Markstrom, elite for the Canucks in 2019-20. Um, 2021 had a down year in Calgary, his first season with the Flames, right? So again, goalies fluctuate. And if there's a scenario where, again, this is not what I'm predicting, but it, there, it's still within the realm of possibility that if he's, say, the 10th to 15th best goal in the league this season instead of top five, that would hurt a lot. And so, again, we're talking about bear cases right now. We went through the bowl. And so we're trying to look at uh, worst case scenarios. And, and it's at least a risk factor just because not because of Demko at all. I love Demko, but goalies as a whole. But Harm, look, their their defensive structure is just going to be so much better. And that's just going to help Demko <laughs> so much. Hey, listen, when we come back, uh, we uh, I want to get into why things went wrong with Jason Dickinson, uh, what a bit of a breakdown on the newest Canuck, Stillman, and uh, what the Canucks opening road trip is going to look like when the VanCast continues. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Harm, as we make our predictions and look ahead to whether this team is or isn't a playoff team, because ultimately we can't sit there and say, well, they're going to make it if they stay healthy, or they're going to make it if Thatcher Demko is good, because that doesn't—it's not how it works. We everybody's going to have a player underperform. Everybody's going to have some level of injury along the way. The season's just too long to avoid that, so we do have to get there. But there are some other teams around them that are going to influence how Vancouver does come April and May. Yeah, and in discussing Vancouver's playoff odds, I don't even think necessarily that there's in. There's a massive internal factor so much as I think Vegas is the massive wild card in this conversation of whether the Canucks can be a playoff team or not, because we don't know what exactly they're going to be. And I'm looking at the Knights' roster right now, and they just don't have the depth that they used to. I mean, I'm looking at their top nine projections right now. They have Brett Howden and Michael Amadio in their top nine right now, and, and that to me signals that they're a top-heavy group right now. We obviously know the question marks that they have in goal with uh, with no Robert L- or Robin Leonard. And so to me, that puts three key players right to the forefront of the conversation, all of them with question marks in front of them in terms of Jack Eichel, for starters. He had the first neck pr- neck procedure of his, of, of his kind in NHL history, and that was the one that the Sabres wouldn't allow him to do. Since coming back, I think everyone would have, would have expected for him to be slow out of the gate, and I think he was around 24 points in 35 games. He, he was solid, but he wasn't the franchise player that he usually is, and I think that's the biggest question mark for Vegas because between him and, and Mark Stone coming back uh, from his back injuries, and we know back injuries especially can be the sort of things that linger and, and can come back and can have an impact on performance. They need Eichel and Stone to be legitimate superstars because, again, they don't have that same top nine depth that they used to. And even on the back end, Alex Petrangelo had a tough year last season. Oh, now, yeah. because of injuries, he was carrying a massive workload and, and perhaps with a healthier back end, you even that out and, and maybe he can bounce back. But he showed signs of, of declining and he wasn't, in my opinion, a true number one last season. And you also even have in, in this in the top four as well, Alec Martinez. He's an older body who missed a lot of time with injury last season last season as well. And so once you consider those factors, they there there are a lot of wild cards with Vegas. And you could foresee a scenario scenario where they're let's say a hundred and five point team and comfortably make the playoffs and Eichel and, and Stone play to their potential. But if they don't, they're gonna be right in this dogfight and and if they don't get stable goaltending, they boy, they could be in trouble real quick. So that's just a quick take I wanted to um, present in terms of Vegas having a huge impact on the Canucks' playoff odds. 
Yeah, you're right. And I mean, certainly they took a took a massive drop uh, hit a year ago and uh, and they haven't fortified. I mean, we're used to this team, Vegas, I'm talking about reloading on a regular basis. And look, they've only been in the league for a handful of years, but they're the team that always seems to be able to make the boldest move and, and be as aggressive as possible. Even though when you look at their cap situation in the roster, you think, how do they fit these guys in? They always find a way. Well, they haven't this offseason. They haven't been that team. So um, you're right. It, it is a wild card. And you know, I know there's a lot of people bullish on the Flames, and I, I'm not 100% there yet because I think it's going to take some time for them to completely turn over the elite end of their roster the way they've done, right? I mean, do, do you just walk in and everything just works comfortably, or does that take some time for all those guys to figure out how to play with one another because of just how comfortable they were with the players they had before with Kachuk and Gaudreau? Potentially. I mean, there is a chemistry aspect and a locker room aspect. I just think they're so deep at every position that they're going to be, especially defensively, how are you going to score on them? With the top four that they have, Hannafin, Anderson, Weger, Tanev, and Markstrom in net, and especially the the centers that they have defensively, Lindholm coming off a Selkie nomination, Backlund's one of the best defensive centers in the game, Kadri's a solid two-way guy. Like They're going to be really, really hard to score on, especially when you add in defensively responsible two-way forwards and, and wingers like Toffoli and and uh, and Blake Coleman, you have them on the roster as well. Yeah, but I, like I'm not I'm not expecting huge offensive numbers there. But uh, I, and I think they're going to have to play it differently and play it more defensively based on who they've got. Right? I mean, they may not be as elite in terms of scoring. Huberto's still there, obviously, but I don't, I don't know. I think they're going to be relying. And you're right. Like whenever you can trade, if you, if you can trade good Branson for Uyghur, like that's a massive upgrade on the back end, right? Uh, in their top four, and you you expect a level of bounce back from. Um, from Markstrom, who wasn't awful last year, but by his standards, right? I mean, I think more was expected when they acquired him. So it was mostly just the playoffs, though. He was a stud in the regular season. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there were some there were some moments and some injuries along the way that affected him at various times during the year. So, you know, I think there was a concern that he was being overplayed, and there was a window there in the middle of the season where his play did drop off a little bit as well. So, but again, I, I do expect Markstrom to be better, not worse. So I think they're going to be. They're going to have to get a little bit carried there, but I do think there's going to it's going to take some time. I think by the time you get to December, I think they're going to be the team we expect them to be. But we'll see what they look like coming out of the gate here. Um, let's transition a little bit to a couple of Canucks. One that's just been added, and one that has why it didn't work. Jason Dickinson. I mean, I remember Drancer Drancer's takes when the Canucks first acquired him um, about just what a great signing this was and what his profile looked like coming out of Dallas and how he was going to make things so much better for Bo Horvat and others to avoid those matchups. He was going to take them on. Why did it just go so poorly for him in Vancouver? Yeah, my my theory in hindsight, because I also, when they made the trade, liked the liked the calculated gamble that they that they took on him. My theory is that it ended up for him in Dallas being a really unique stylistic fit in terms of the way the Dallas Stars played, especially under Rick Bonus. There were such a low event team and, and defense first at all costs and no offensive creativity. They just wanted to slow the play play down. And that was that was the Dallas Stars' game. We want to slow the other team down and, and have them play our style. And for that sort of system, I think supported with the defensive pieces that he was, and and with that play style, Dickinson was a decent was a decent fit for that, and that's why he was such a go to piece for 
Rick Bonus in every part of the lineup and why he would play such prominent five on five minutes is because in that sort of environment, it was just he Dickinson didn't have to do much to excel defensively. And I think that's where you look you looked at his defensive metrics. And in Dallas, they were elite. And he and it wasn't just an analytics take either, because for starters, the coach bonus was deploying him a ton. I remember going back and, and looking at the ice times for one of the seasons and Dickinson was playing more five on five minutes per game than Rope hints. So <laughs> yeah, it was ridiculous, but clearly the stars trusted him as well. And it wasn't just the defensive metrics. And I mean, you even heard Bruce Boudreaux when he first came in and the topic of, of Dickinson's fit was brought up and Boudreaux was sort of gushing about Dickinson and remembering coaching the wild and having to play the stars so often and how frustrating Dickinson was to kind of play against. And, I think in in hindsight, what we're learning is when you took that player out of that unique defensive environment and dropped him in a spot in Vancouver where you're playing a different way, there just wasn't enough there. And 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 once you took him away from that unique environment, you started to see that okay, his skating's not up to par, and okay, he's he's a big body, but he's never physical, and he just wasn't. He wasn't able to win a faceoff. He was a, a disaster on the penalty kill. And I think last season was, th- there could not have been a worst case scenario for how Dickinson's fit was. And I think we're, we're, we're just learning that, hey, we should have maybe factored in that Dallas was such a unique fit and, and one of the best defensive teams in the NHL and, and that, Dick, that it was more the, the team than the player that was driving those results. No, fair enough. And the fact is, is that it didn't work under either coach, right? I mean, it didn't work with with Travis Green. It didn't work with Bruce Boudreau. Uh, it didn't work with training camp and a whole offseason to kind of get his game to a different point. Like, none of it worked. And we'll see what winds up happening for him in Chicago because, yeah, they play low event, but there's just not much there. So he'll probably get a, a bigger opportunity roster-wise and role-wise. So uh, we'll see if he's ready for the change and, and what type of player he truly is. But certainly was not a good fit here. So the Canucks... Wind up picking up Riley Stillman. Now, we do know that Danny DeKaiser was here as a PTO. That didn't work out. They released him from from that and brought in another depth defenseman. They could have gone the waiver wire route. There were Riley Stillman type defensemen, that level of defenseman available on the waiver wire uh, for less, for free. But they went this way just to remove themselves or rid themselves of Dickinson's cap situation. So, what did you make of the move and what do you think of the player? Yeah, I think for starters, it is important to say that I don't know if they would have had the cap flexibility to claim a defenseman off waivers if um, if they hadn't made this move. So that's important to note. And, and, and I do think the, the the rebuttal to that would be that, okay, well, if you can't claim a guy off waivers, Christian Wallanen, who played yeah, who has 70 absolutely. NHL games, he could have he could have been just fine. But yeah, you're right. It's it's mostly about dumping Dickinson's contract and picking up the caps cap savings because of Stillman's 1.35 million dollar hit. The actual cap savings is only 1.3 million, and I think. But you could also you, you could also send Stillman down at some point, right? I mean, if he's not sure, but you could have also done that with Dickinson, right? For sure, yeah. So it's just I think cap space wise, you've really gained 1.3. I think there were other many advantages that are, that are important to bring up, right? For starters, I think this move made it easier for them to net a perfect capture on in terms of the LTIR, which we discussed earlier. Now, practicality, I don't think it changes the operation of the club too much in terms of the other ways that they could have 
pulled off some cap gymnastics, and I still think they would have been really close. They've always been really close to the Furland uh, three and a half maximum LTIR capture. Um, and I do think Stillman helps in terms of the the injuries that they're going through right now. But when I look at the cost paid, and for starters, I think it's a, it's important to say that, hey, it was in line with market value, right? You look at Patrick Nemeth and the Rangers dumping his contract and then paying essentially two seconds for it. Um, Zach Cassian to from Edmonton to Arizona, they paid a second, a third, and um, and dropped down three spots in the uh, in the latter part of the first round of the 2022 draft to dump his $3.2 million salary. It's in line with market value. I just wonder, are the Canucks good enough to justify participating in such an expensive mar- market for short-term cap relief? Because you look at the teams that spent a second or more to dump a contract this offseason, Edmonton and the Rangers, uh, Toronto with Peter Morazic. You go back the offseason earlier, it was Tampa with Tyler Johnson, Florida with Anton Strom, and the Islanders with Andrew Ladd, uh, Philadelphia with Shane Gostisbury. So you look at some of those individual situations. Edmonton and New York did it coming off of conference final appearances. They're paying picks to maximize every penny against the cap because they believe they can win the Stanley Cup this season. Toronto was a 115-point team last season. Uh, Tampa paid the price because they were obviously trying to three-peat. Florida was fourth in the NHL standings the year before they they paid to dump that Strawman contract. The Islanders were coming off back-to-back Eastern Conference final appearances when they dumped the Ladd contract. And you look at Philadelphia, they're the clear outlier, but number one, they're a laughing stock around the NHL. And, uh, and number two, even though they, they paid that expen- expensive price to dump Shane Goss's Bears contract, that allowed them, they immediately kind of took that money and went out and, and acquired Ryan Ellis. And obviously that didn't work out for them because of how Ellis has never been healthy. But the idea was, okay, we're paying and now we then have the cap flexibility to acquire a top pair right-handed defenseman, right? So you could, even though the Flyers weren't, weren't a contender, you could see that, okay, we're, we're immediately able to weaponize this and add an impact player that we otherwise might not have had the flexibility to be able to afford. Meanwhile, the Canucks are surrounding a valuable future asset for the cap benefits of, of a playoff team, uh, for a bubble playoff team. And that's where I think when you look at Dickinson, the alternative could have been you wave him, uh, you buy him out in the summer, and the math was actually pretty favorable for that. I wouldn't normally worry about losing a second, but it's just Jim Benning screwed this management group, right? He... He gave uh, he threw away first and second round picks like candy and and right now already I mean elite prospects had them with the twenty eighth ranked uh, pipeline in the NHL like I mean the the silver lining is it, it was at least a twenty twenty four second round pick so it's further down the line um, and there are I think other other benefits in terms of the the cash savings and and so there are two perspectives to look at it I think the perspective one is if you're in management's shoes. And you have to remember that there's an element of managing up with an ownership group. You look at it as, okay, we're getting rid of Dickinson. We're patching up our depth D until Myers and Dermott come back. We're making our LTIR capture cheaper. And we're getting tougher to play against with Stillman, adding toughness. And we're saving ownership $3.25 million in actual cash. Not in, not in cap, but in terms of the ownership's pocketbooks. You, could, you, could, you can see the logic and rationale behind making that trade and giving up that second round pick. I just I I wonder the other perspective is Stanley Cup contenders are the only teams that pay seconds or higher at least in the last couple off seasons to, to gain short term cap relief and you wonder if the Canucks can afford to buck that trend. 
Yeah, I just, I don't view, I don't believe they necessarily view themselves the way we view them. I think they believe they're closer than, um, than uh, many of us think they are. And I think operate accordingly. I, I don't want to say they're completely on a short-term fix-it this minute. I think they're they're trying to balance that line between forward thinking and long-term. You know, and I guess everybody's trying to do that to a point, but I do think that this group, it's clear they have an expectation to be in the playoffs this year, period. Yeah. And they're going to operate accordingly. Now, I know there's a big difference between a playoff team and a Stanley Cup contender, but I think in terms of how this group is going to operate, I think they believe that the playoffs are a big win and a big goal for them, and that's going to be there, right? And it's tough when you look at a player like Dickinson that it costs you a third rounder to to get him, and then it costs you a second rounder to get rid of him. It uh, it does seem like a whole lot of effort, like you know, meaningful chips that have been played for a player that amounted to nothing in a season. So, yeah, but I get uh, that. I just. Part of me wonders if the bill is eventually going to come due for, and again, this is mostly about last management group. It's it's not this management group's fault at all. But, man, but they've the got way to, they're aggressively trade- trying to clean it up, right? And ultimately, that aggression will come at the expense of long term to a point. It will, like it's it's inevitable. They can't make all those decisions going forward. They're just like going that far down the line. They're just not going to. Um, you know, they like you think Jim Rutherford's going to be doing this forever. No, of course not. Right. Like, I mean, I, like to me, I look at this. As, I look at Jim Rutherford as being here with the Canucks for two seasons. Like, I don't think he's going to be here that long. Right. So they're going to do as much as they can, as soon as they can to put this team in a in a reasonable stead. And I think that also means that they're going to try to acquire picks. Right. I don't think it's simply they're going to just give them out like candy. I do think they're going to make a more effective, meaningful effort in terms of trying to acquire those picks and getting them back and seeing if they can still stockpile the prospect pool to a point, you're not going to get the high end because you're not going to buy in on a level of rebuild that allows them to just gut it and be a bottom five team. That's not going to happen here. But but how are they going to do that? Right. You think about on the wingers are the last off season weren't worth much, which is no. where they had some expendable pieces. And you're telling me they're going to, I mean, maybe they're going to move Bo Horvat, but I don't think so. So it's like, where else do you have talent that could help you recoup them? And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be the guy that's banging about draft picks all the time. I just, I just worry a little bit because you need, if you want to sustain and and have a really long contention window, you need blue chip ELC talent to to be able to consistently come in and 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 help you out. The way, for example, in Colorado. When Nazem Kadri is up for contract and, and he needs a massive extension, you 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 have a player like Alex Newhook in your system who can step up and you're like, all right, he's going to be the second line center. And so you, I don't know, there is there is part of me that I, like I, worries I, about that. I, I know what you're saying, but I also think that we may not have seen the last move. And I say that because, look, if Kuzmenko yeah, does everything fair. the Canucks expect, if Mikheyev comes back healthy and does some really good things and they know what they're going to get there, Connor Garland may still become expendable. Right. Uh, you know, players that you've potentially sent down that are now closer. Right. Like if if Klimovich makes a case in a year, uh, if if Carlson shows that he can do some things offensively, it makes other pieces expendable. So I don't think we've seen the final move here. Right. Like I think they're trying to. Yeah, that's fair. They're, I think they're trying to hit on some players, 
see where it goes. And if it can hit on them, then it makes other players movable. I mean, you know, is there a market for Connor Garland around the NHL? Sure there is. You know, were they trying to potentially move him so they could acquire the RD that they wanted? Maybe, and maybe that's not his value, but you could trade you know, winger for younger winger and draft pick. Like there are still ways to kind of navigate and and acquire some of those pieces. Maybe it's next off season, but so I, I don't think the the door is closed on how they're going to eventually navigate the pieces and eventually bring some pieces back. But um, you know, yeah, it's going to require them to hit on some other players, right? Because we we do believe there's some depth in other areas. Before we wrap up on on the defense and Stillman, um, tell me more about the player and what your true evaluation of this defense is because there's been so much hand-wringing in the market about them not having been able to improve but what really is this group yeah i think someone off the bat alvin said it he's a third pair guy and, and i'm interested to see what he can be for this uh for this back end group because again he brings a level of of toughness and pushback that i think management really wanted to add to this group to this roster and i'm curious to see where his puck skills are at because if he can be a competent player in that regard and, and he doesn't need he's not obviously brought in to be a puck mover but as long as he can be competent there can be a fit for him especially as insurance if Rathbone is an everyday piece I could see a scenario where you have let's say Stillman on the left side and Dermot on the right side and Dermot's the the puck moving offensive guy and Stillman's the stay-at-home physical presence and I like the the possibility I like the idea of that third pairing and when Stillman was initially acquired by Chicago, he had been through the Panthers' system as a mid-round draft pick. And after his first season, Stan Bowman signed him to a three-year extension. You don't normally see bottom pair depth guys get that level of investment. So I think that tells me that Chicago certainly saw potential in him. Now, last season wasn't a banner year for him. He had some injuries. He was an occasional healthy scratch. But he was also coming out of a really tough situation in Chicago. That team was a tire fire. And when you have defensemen on teams that are disastrous, I think it could sometimes be hard to evaluate what exactly they are. So it's going to be interesting to see what exactly he is. Now, the point I wanted to make about the blue line as a whole, and this is where I, I'm, I can be Mr. Positive and, and I'm glad to, glad to be that after being a little bit, a little bit uh, critical of, of the trade is, Look, we know the Canucks' blue line is decisively below average. We know it's their biggest weakness. But the thing to keep in mind as it pertains to this season is the elephant in the room issue isn't that the blue line completely sucks. It's that it's one of the most expensive in the NHL. It's the cost and the contracts and how inefficient it is that kills you. The actual personnel on the ice, when healthy, aren't a tire fire. We've, look, if you forget the Myers-Pullman OEL contracts for a, sec for a second... There's a scenario where the, where the back end can absolutely be competent. I mean, right off the bat, you start with Hughes. That's a legit number one Stanley Cup caliber number one defenseman. And then you also have Oliver Ekman Larson, who last season was a high-end second-pair driver. And you look around the league, how many teams check off that box in terms of having a legit number one and a quality second-pair driver on top of that? There are a lot of teams that don't fit that criteria. I mean, Winnipeg. They don't have a true number one with Morrissey. Chicago, they might have Seth Jones as a number one, but I'd take Hughes over Jones, and they don't have a piece like OEL. Uh, the St. Louis Blues, they're expected to be right in the playoff mix. They were a Dark Horse, Dark Horse Cup contender last season. Pareko isn't a legit number one, and even though I like Falk and, and Krug as second pair guys, they don't have a Quinn Hughes. And 
So then you go through go through and look at Detroit. More Mo Sider is an absolute beast, but who's their second best defenseman after that? Ben Sherratt, Ole Mata. I mean, that's that's a problem there. Uh, San Jose, Carl Eric Carlson's not a legit number one anymore. The second pair is projected to be Vlasic, who's washed, and Matt Benning. Um, wow. Ottawa, they have Thomas Shabbat, but after that, they have nothing. Um, Montreal is Mon- Montreal. Arizona is Arizona, aside from Chikrin. Um, Philadelphia, Provorov isn't a true number one. Even uh, Columbus now, them adding Goudreau, people are expecting them to be a lot better. I think Wierenski is a legit number one, but they have nothing high-end behind him. So that right there, I list- named off 10 teams that don't have the high-end pieces. Well, but most of the team, in fairness, most of the teams you mentioned are, are not going to be in the playoffs. Yes, but if you're if we're talking about the blue line is the weakest part part of this roster, and they're already potentially not a bottom ten blue line in the, in the NHL, it makes you feel a lot better about it, doesn't it? Especially uh, yeah. when you think about Winnipeg's expected Winnipeg's a team that the Canucks are going to have to fight for a wild card spot. St. Louis could be one of the teams that they fight for a wild card spot. Um, so again, I'm not trying to make a point that the back end is is good or that it's. Like, like, yeah, it's decisively below average, and your one, your one injury to Hughes, OEL, Myers, to one of those guys away from it being a, a, a potential tire fire. But when this group is healthy, when players are, are are living up to the potential, I mean, Hughes, OEL, Myers, I mean, that being your top three, you look around the rest of the league, it's not great, but it's it's it could be competent. Is the point I'm trying to make. I love it. It could be competent. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will preview the Canucks season opening road trip. So, Harm, let's look at the five-game road trip to open the season for the Canucks. It begins Wednesday in Edmonton, followed by Saturday in Philadelphia. Back-to-backs on Monday, Tuesday with Washington and Columbus. And then it wraps up against Minnesota the following Thursday before they play the home opener against Buffalo on Saturday the 22nd. So, uh, almost two weeks before you get to see your favorite team at home. Um, but, uh, let's let, you know, I, I think there's Edmonton and I think there's the rest of the trip. You know what I mean? Like just in terms of uh, how Canuck fans are, are going to look at this one, just because of the amount we're going to see Edmonton this year and everything that goes around that and what we've seen from them in the preseason. But, you know, you look at Edmonton's roster and, uh, certainly their high end is high end. And then you've got, uh, improvement in net for them as well. So what are you expecting? I don't want to give, I don't want an Edmonton dissertation or preview, but just the Canucks matchup against Edmonton. Uh, yes, we know anything can happen, but uh, what are we going to learn about this Canuck team on Wednesday? It's going to be a tough challenge for them. The Oilers have obviously improved in net, but I think the bigger, the, the more fascinating point to me is they aren't just a one line team offensively anymore, right? We know that they have McDavid and Drysaddle at the top, but you look at the way that they've rounded out the, the, the top nine and, Man, it's it's a really like you want to talk about what an elite top nine group is when you have McDavid and Drysaddle at the top. Like that's that's what that's what it looks like now. Considering they also have the depth, right? They will have Evander Kane back for a full season. They've been able to add Zach Hyman last season. Um, they've got Yamamoto. Ryan Nugent Hopkins is going to be on their third line. Dylan Holloway had an excellent camp in preseason. It looks like he could be uh, perhaps similar for the Oilers as to what Pod Colson was last season. You still have Jesse Pugliarvi kicking around on your third line as well. I, I think Ryan McLeod is an underrated piece to have in your bottom six as well as, as a speedster and, and a potential guy who could break out. And it, you're just looking at, I think, a team now where they have this uh, they have this three-headed monster down the middle with, dry, with McDavid, Drysaddle, and Nugent Hopkins all on 
three different lines and and actually some decent wingers for once. So I think that's going to be a tough matchup. But I think what's interesting about until their the five on five scoring dries up and they've got to put McDavid and Drysaddle together again because that generally has been the pattern. Yes. Maybe they don't have to do that though. If if some of their second and third line guys hit, which again I think, but there's no newcomers. There, there are no newcomers there, right? It's Kane I mean, for it's Kane for a full season and a year of additional seasoning for everybody else and a young player that you hope can have an impact as a rookie, right? That's look good in camp. Sure, but I think they played at something like 115 or 119 point pace once they had the coaching change and once they had uh, Evander Kane and and remember he joined the midseason. So, so what you're saying is the Canucks all operated Boost Boudreaux's clip over 57 games. Look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying that, but I think Edmonton. I mean, they made the final four too, so I think they're a legit team. I think they're they're. I don't want to go and go as far as to say they're cup con- necessarily high end cup contenders, but they're in that conversation as dark horses for sure. Sure, in my opinion. And curious and to so, see yeah. what the goal, what difference the goaltending makes. It might not make a lot. That, no. that, I think that's where. I think the impact of the perceived upgrade in net is being overrated, whereas I think the solidity of their top nine and, and how much deeper they are now is being underrated because Jack Campbell, you hear the description about him, right? You think about what he was last season. He was, he had, the first half, he was one of the hottest goalies in the NHL. And then in the second half, he was one of the worst goalies in the NHL. It's a streaky player who you wonder if he's a legit number one for a cup contender. That sounds a lot like Mike Smith. I mean, again, I think Campbell's better than Smith, but Smith was also really streaky. And I think in the regular season, at least Smith was, I think he had like a 9-12 save percentage. The Oilers actually had competent goaltending in the regular season. So yes, they're on paper, they're better and they may be more stable in playoffs and they needed to make an upgrade in net just because Smith was also really old. But I don't think that it's all of a sudden, I don't think the goaltending is going to be what takes them to the next level. There's, you know, you can't say so much that a team needs to make a statement and do this or that from a point percentage standpoint on an opening road trip. But given how poorly this team has started and the emphasis placed on that and the fact that they've looked really ordinary in preseason, right? You know, the last two games, they were better. But, uh, you know, it, it's tough when you look at that Arizona roster in the final preseason game. But when you look at just everything leading up to it, how important is this first five-game trip? And what are not reasonable expectations? What are needed goals to be met here? Yeah, I think for for me anyway, I look at this road trip and just avert disaster because it's a yeah. tough opening road trip. I think it's harder than two, two, and one. Yeah, like as long as you don't have more than two regulation losses, I think it's like, yeah, like I would take like two, two, and one. Obviously, you don't you want a little bit better than that, but if that's what it ends up being in terms of a result. For the first five games, that's to- totally fine because I think this road trip in terms of the competition you're facing could be tougher than it looks like on paper, right? Edmonton's a really good team. Philadelphia, I think, is going to going to be a bottom feeder this year, but a John Tortorella team out of the gate, they're going to be firing. They're going to be they're going to have that underdog identity. They're they're going to have a, a fire under their butts, right? So they could be tougher, even though they're they're a bad team. Uh, and then obviously you have Washington. They have some injuries, so that's maybe you're hoping to win that. But even Columbus, there's going to be some buzz around them early with the Goudreau addition and, and what that could mean for for their team and that excitement and that factor. So they won't be easy on the second leg of a back-to-back. And then Minnesota's always a solid team. So for me, just 
don't have a disastrous start. Don't be in a situation where remember after remember after the Buffalo game, I think it was, where the, where the Canucks lost that one. Travis Green was already having to bag skate them, and they were talking about you know, working <laughs> hard enough and just don't have any issues about the work rate. I think you want the work rate to be through the roof and process wise, you want some of these habits to start to clean up in terms of defensive structure and turnovers. And so I'm not too fixated on the results. I'm not saying you need to go, you need need to win um, four or five here or anything. Just show us some positive habits and, and, and don't have a disaster right out of the gate. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I look at it, and yeah, you're right. Philly is what it is. Um, you know, Washington's going to be a tough out. Columbus is kind of right there in the middle. Um, you know, I, I think they've got a chance to come away from this trip 500. Or I, I think that's a reasonable expectation. But um, maybe they could be better than that if things hit. Yeah, like, you're you're you know, right. I'm just kind of looking at it from a worst case standpoint. Right? Like right they, yeah, they can't have they can't have this. Yeah, we don't like to see them go. You know, a four and one or four zero oh and one, but they just. They can't find themselves playing catch up this early in the season. Definitely. You know, and we need to, see, you know, I'd, I'd love to see some process things. I'd love for them to be able to show us that they can play with defensive structure and reasonably transition the puck, right? Like show me those process based things and I'd be happy. Even if, even if Pod Colson and Kuzmenko don't get a point or just get an assist between them or whatever, right? If you can show me some of those other things that you're not having to uh, rely on Demko to, to bail you in and out of games this early in the season. Just show me that and, and, and five points in 10 games and I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And you get Buffalo right after, um, and just the home, home, home opener on the Saturday. So that's your first two weeks, at least three wins. If you have three wins, I, I think you're, you're, you're happy in terms of considering the, the road trip and how much travel and fatigue there is on that kind of trip and the back to back and overall three games and four nights. Three wins, I think you're you're happy because you've you've avoided crisis. Obviously, the more the merrier, and, and there is a chance that they can do better if they get on a roll early, and if Pedersen really starts to pop out of the gate. But three wins, three out of the six, I think you're I think you, you would constitute that as a step in the right direction. And, and all right, we we're still in this, and let's now that they're they now that they would be back at home for a while, let's start to build some momentum after that. Well, here we go, Wednesday. Puck drops in Edmonton. We are finally excited. Well, some of you have been excited longer. I'm finally excited. And hey, whenever I get a chance to do a pod with you, it's great harm. We will do it again next week. If By you're the looking, way, yes, sir. I blame. We, we, we haven't even talked to Blue Jays. Blue Jays. Yeah. I, our producer, Jeff Demet, like, hey, you're going long here. So I haven't been able to rip you. Now, look, it's not too late for you. We can convert you. You were not born when they won World Series titles. Don't tell me you're basking in the glow. You can be converted. Your mind is young. It's impressionable. Do the right thing, Harm. The Mariners are the future. Let's yeah, go, I mean, buddy. Let's go. I'm not a diehard and a blue, diehard enough Blue Jays fan to where it's like I hate rivals or, or other or other teams. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna hop on the Mariners here. Uh, now that the Blue Jays are out. Now, one thing I will say, I blame Austin Matthews for throwing that first pitch less than two weeks before that game. Are you kidding me? The way that they collapsed 8-1, blowing an 8-1 lead oh, so in Leafs-like style. so good. Oh, so my God. Good. Don't let, why would you let Austin Matthews in your in your home uh, building two weeks before you want to curse him with the Leafs' luck? Uh, <laughs> let's go, Mariners. Uh, you know, and you, if, they, if they get swept by Houston, I don't really give a damn because... A, they got in. B, they beat the Blue Jays. So I don't have to listen to any more about the Blue Jays uh, for another year. So it couldn't have been better for me. And just the way it happened, the most painful way possible. Oh, awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was so funny the collapse that it couldn't even be mad. Oh, you, well, it uh, hurts, I, but like I couldn't be mad. As uh, as my good friend Andrew Warden says, that the pain from that will never ever go away. Hey, if you're looking for other pod options, next time we'll, we'll actually give you Mariner pod options available on the Athletic down in Seattle. But hey, <laughs> subscribe to the Athletic Hockey Show on YouTube. Their live season preview shows today at two Eastern with Ian Mendez, Sean Gentili, and their guest Pierre LeBrun, Eric Stevens. Arthur Stable and Peter Baugh. Thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, subscribe, leave a rating and a review. Uh, and uh, this offer still remains. Get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just a dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We will be back next week. We've got to figure out the day because of that Monday-Tuesday doubleheader. We don't like doing these on game day, but uh, we're looking forward to having some actual regular season hockey to talk about when the VanCast returns next week. Thanks for listening.